what you want to do here in Northgate, at Northgate, in North Richland Hills, God. Let it be done here as it is in heaven. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. I'm excited tonight. We have a, a guest speaker with us. She spoke last Wednesday, but I just want to share a quick little thought that I, that I was thinking about from the first time she spoke. I don't know if y'all were here a few months ago. Sister Clemens, I think your message was titled Broken Foundations. Is that right? Okay. She did something so amazing when she got up. She didn't start with her message or her scripture. She got up and she told us a little bit about her. But she did so in a way that revealed parts of her history that most people throughout their entire life would probably never be willing to share. And she got up here and she started off with, hey, I want you to know who I am. This is my story. This is what I've been through. That never left me because I sat there and I was like, man, how can you not win over a room? How can the room not be captured by what you're about to say whenever you invite us into that much of your heart and what God's done for your life. So I look up to her. She's an amazing woman of God. It was incredible to hear her that night and last week. I'm excited to hear her again tonight. Can we give a round of applause to Sister Sylvia Clemens as she comes to minister the word tonight? Thank you so much. And you may be seated. Again, it is such a pleasure to be here, to be able to share with you this evening. I believe we serve a God who is so good and who will see us through every difficulty in this very difficult time, this season, things that are going on, things that are happening. But we serve a God who is greater than every bit of that. So... Again, I consider it an honor to be here, and I thank, um, I thank the friendly people here of Northgate for accepting me in as one of the members and one of the members of the family. I appreciate that, and I don't take it lightly either. So last week, we talked about how to answer the question, who is my neighbor, um, according to the words of Jesus. Um, and we found out he said that our neighbor isn't just the person who lives next door. But our neighbor, as the way Jesus presented it, is everyone. And that everyone also includes our enemies. <laughs> now that's the bad news. <laughs> um, but the good news is that we don't have to first feel that love for either our neighbors or our enemies but he does ask us to do the love. And so as we talked about last week doing love, we also looked at God's definition of love and how that differs so dramatically from what we see in the culture around us. So in our cultural understanding of what love actually is, we too often have believed that we have to feel the feeling before we can actually do the action of love. And so we found out with that, as we talked last week, that God calls us and asks us to do love action even without the love feeling. So biblical love then is volitional. It's an act of the will. It's something that we choose to do. And it's something we can and choose, should choose to do even in spite of our feelings. So that's the challenge. 
So tonight I want to go a little bit further and talk about one of the reasons for us as human beings that it is difficult sometimes, it's a struggle for us to do some of the things that we're commanded to do, like what I've just talked about. I suspect that all of you are just like I am. Sometimes it's a struggle or a challenge to get my flesh to actually get in line to do what the word says. Anybody notice that? <laughs> so tonight, my topic is the battle of the I am's. The battle of the I am's. So in this life, we are presented with very many choices. And one of the principal ones is which I am are we going to follow? Which I am is going to be the ruler of my life. So let me explain. When Moses first encountered God and was told, he was told to go and lead God's people out of slavery, Moses asked God, he says, what should I say if the people ask me who has sent me here? In Exodus 3.14, it says this, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you, sent me to you. Then we read in the New Testament, John's gospel, Jesus was nearly killed for blasphemy when he identified himself with his God who had made himself known to Moses. So in John 8, 58, we read this. Jesus said unto them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Also in John's gospel, you, you can read that Jesus made seven profound I am statements throughout that book. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth and the life, and the true vine. So Jesus identified himself as the great I am. And so with that, we have God's declaration that he is the I am in the Old Testament, and he came as the I am Messiah in the New Testament. He came to show us the way, and he came to show us the true I am. What I've also seen is that this world declares its own kind of I am messages. Only it's not the I am of the Bible. It's the message of man that says, I am. Not God is able, but I am able. Not I can do all things through Christ. It's that I can do all things in my own strength. Now, I've seen that demonstrated many different ways and variations in our modern world, and I want to talk about that just a little bit. I want to give you some background so you can understand a little bit more about what I'm talking about here. So several things that have affected our culture. One was called the self-esteem movement. Another was called the new age movement. Now, both of these movements rose up in the late 60s and early 70s, and both of them proclaimed a kind of I am message. Well, you might be thinking, well, that's 
quite a long time ago, the 60s and 70s, and, and it was. But both of those movements have had some serious consequences for our culture even today. They both have presented ways of thinking that have many of us captured by our culture in ways we haven't even recognized. So even though those movements are no longer really active as such, or even recognized by younger generations, they go self-esteem movement, new age movement, what in the world is that? But they both planted seeds within our culture that have grown and spread into far-reaching consequences in ways we haven't even recognized. So remember my premise from last week that the culture that we live in determines generally, in large part, how we see our, the world, our part in it, and it creates that, just, that's just how we do it, kind of mentality. And so we end up casually and routinely just accepting some of these ways that we think because they're familiar. And we don't really examine what they mean in the light of God's word. So here's a little background on my personal introduction to what we're talking about this evening. Okay. So the year was 1991. And I had only been a Christian in the church for about three years at that point. And the pastor, pastor asked me to teach a lesson on self-esteem for Vacation Bible School. So the church I was in at that time, VBS included adults as well, so this lesson was to be for the adults. So the idea of the lesson as he presented it to me was to basically teach people how to have good self-esteem. So I started trying to put that lesson together, and I struggled with it, and I struggled with it, and the idea of teaching that lesson in church. But remember, I had been a secular counselor already before I got into church, so in that context, I had no second thoughts about self-esteem at all or those issues. I knew, just like my fellow counselors did and all my clients did at the time, that all of us humans have a need for high self-esteem. Likewise, we knew that if our self-esteem was low, we had all kinds of problems. The answer we believed at that time was to teach people to think more highly of themselves, to love themselves, and to value themselves. So as I worked on that lesson and struggled to, with trying to put it together, I found I really had to sort out what I, what I really believed. I had to take all of my secular humanist education and my pre-church, pre-Holy Ghost, everyday life experiences in listening to the world's messages and compare them to what God's word was telling me. And what I saw, not just with this issue over the years, but with many different issues, is that what I had been taught and what I had believed was not what God was saying in his book. And frankly, again, that, that happened for me many times in, in many different topics. And so I developed the lesson and taught it as a comparison of two systems, God's system and Satan's system, or the word against the world. 
I don't think that's exactly what the pastor was expecting when he asked me to teach the lesson, but nevertheless, that's, I thought that was important to say, and I still say, think so. So if people come into the church out of the world like I did, even after receiving the Holy Ghost, it's often difficult to move from one system to the other. Many times we have difficulty even recognizing what system we're dealing with. First, often because we've been in the world system so long, it just is so familiar. And um, second, because sometimes the differences are subtle, like the matter of self-esteem. And that's often how we end up captured by our culture. We end up trying then to plug God's word into our cultural context and our mindset. But I believe in order for us to be true followers of Jesus in our, even our post-Christian culture that we're living in right now, we must know how to distinguish the lies of the world from the truth of God's word. And many of the world's messages don't come with the word lie stamped on them in big red letters. So we have to have a way to clearly discern the difference. So before I go any farther, I want to look at some definitions here to help us with this. So as people write or talk about the issue of self-esteem, many times they often use other terms like self-concept, self-image, self-love, and self-worth. And they're used very loosely and interchangeably um, in people's language today, but I don't think that's accurate. I think each and every one of those has a different meaning, its own meanings. So here's what Webster says about the three terms that are used most often. The word esteem means opinion or judgment of merit or demerit, high value of estimation, great regard, favorable opinion founded on supposed worth. So self-esteem then is, according to Webster, the esteem or high value or good opinion of oneself. The word concept means a thought, opinion, an idea. Self-concept then would be the opinions, thoughts, or ideas we have of ourselves. And the word worth is defined as the price, value, or honor. The quality of a thing that renders it valuable. Value in respect of mental or moral qualities. Self-worth would be then the value that we place on ourselves, the honor and respect that we give ourselves. So in the time that I was originally exploring this issue, our culture was still very much saturated with what they called the self-esteem movement. So for years with that, we had been learning how important our self-esteem was. We were told that one of the major problems in society, even our world, was that people had low self-esteem. We were told that criminals committed crime because they had low self-esteem. Divorces and abusive homes happen because of self-esteem problems. People are homeless, jobless, friendless because of low self-esteem. People's low self-esteem caused them to be unable to accomplish or succeed. Name any social ill at the time, and you could find someone who said that problem was because someone had low self-esteem, and that was behind it all. Good old Shirley MacLaine. 
Anybody remember her? She even went so far as to say many of our modern horrors result from a lack of self-love or self-esteem, including environmental pollution, wars, famine, and disease. So you see how big an issue is th this is. Everything was being attributed that was a problem to low self-esteem. The self-esteem movement essentially worked to convince us that all human ills and ailments don't, don't result from a broken relationship with God. They result from a broken relationship with self. They don't result from sin, but they all result from that broken relationship with self. And according to the movement, okay, once we heal the broken relationship with ourselves by increasing our self-esteem or our self-love, then we will be free to be successful and lead those wonderful lives of happiness and fulfillment. Do you hear the I am here? The I am of the focus on self, the flesh, the focus on the need to recognize how powerful we are. The theory, or the lie here, is that once we recognize and acknowledge our personal power, we will all have that fantastically successful and rewarding life that we long for. One of the ways this manifested itself was in our public classrooms. In 1969, a man named Nathaniel Brandon wrote a paper called The Psychology of Self-Esteem. And it suggested that feelings of self-esteem were the key to success in life. So hearing this, people started developing ways and starting to find ways to bestow this wonderful confidence upon all of our children in the school systems. There was actually a book that was written in 1991 called The Lovables in the Kingdom of Self-Esteem. The inside copy read as followed. I am lovable, I am lovable, I am lovable. Do you hear the I am? By using these magical words, children are told that the gates to the kingdom of self-esteem would swing open for readers of all ages. And inside this kingdom lived 24 animals, the lovables, each one with a special gift to contribute. Mona Monkey, is lovable. Owen Owl is capable. Buddy Beaver takes care of the world around him. Greta Goat trusts herself. So these are some of the things that were being fed to the children at that time. So public school systems invested a lot of time and money in helping children build higher self-esteem. In an elementary school in Los Angeles where students were barely passing, and the school overall was struggling to raise its test scores, a part of every day was spent in I love me lessons. Each student completed the phrase, I am, with words such as beautiful, lovable, respectable, kind, gifted, and then they memorized those sentences so they could sink in. And this is the emphasis that resulted in competitions where everyone gets a trophy. Do you remember that? And no one actually wins. New games were invented 
and created to engage children without any winners or losers. It led to the, you can't have winners or losers because someone's feelings are going to get hurt and they will be traumatized and feel bad about themselves. Here's one of the very sad results of that teaching. An 18-year-old young woman took this teaching on the self-esteem, I have to feel good about myself, very seriously. She left a suicide note when she hanged herself. It said, nothing happened last year to make my life worthwhile. A year ago exactly, I made a sort of a bargain with God or fate, and this is a part of my bargain. I agree that if something didn't happen last year to make life worth living and make me somebody, that at the end of the year I would quit living. That wasn't asking too much, but I didn't get it. Please don't think this is something brought on by late events. Suicide is a coward's way out, so I am a coward. I just don't have the courage to go on just existing. How sad is that? Not only did the self-esteem is all important affect our school systems and our secular culture's mentality, listen to this. One of the striking things about the self-esteem movement is its tremendous appeal to those both within and without the church. Like their counterparts in the world, many Christian psychologists and even many pastors, elders, and theologians were claiming that a person must first learn to love himself before he can be expected to love others, including God. Here's some examples of what Christians were saying. Anybody remember Robert Schuller? He's the guy who had that huge congregation, the nationwide ministry in the Crystal Cathedral in California. And he taught that the deepest need of human beings is not salvation from sin, if salvation means that the individual's self-esteem is assaulted. But he taught that humans' deepest need is for high self-esteem. He also said that the original sin in the garden was the lack of self-esteem. In his book, Self-Esteem, the New Reformation, he wrote that Christ encountered hell during his death on the cross because he experienced the loss of human pride. Schuller taught that a person without self-esteem is in hell. This is the church teaching. Then there's Joel Osteen. One internet site said this about him years ago. Joel's teaching are nothing short of sweet bread for the pew sitters. He admits that he does not want to talk about anything negative. Sin, hell, God's wrath unto the unbeliever at the end time are not a part of his vocabulary. He admits that since talking about sin makes people uncomfortable, he just wants them to feel good and feel good about themselves. So Christian self-esteem champions were also telling us that the desire for self-love is a basic human birthright and a need that drives all of our behaviors. Do you see how we can take these things and even then try to fit them into the church 
context here. Here's a couple of other quotes, and then I'll move on. Self-love is thus the prerequisite and the criterion for our conduct toward our neighbor. Without self-love, there can be no love for others. You cannot love neighbor, you cannot love God, unless you first love yourself. Obviously, they bought that cultural definition that I've been talking about, and they believe they have to feel the love before they can do it. Another quote, actually... Our ability to love God and to love our neighbor is limited by our ability to love others. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, by our ability to love ourselves. We cannot love God more than we love our neighbor, and we cannot love our neighbor more than we love ourselves. And one more. People who have poor self-image, who fail to realize their own self-worth, are who are always belittling themselves, these people usually have difficulty in loving others properly. So this rampant love affair here with self-esteem, or the self as the I am, started in the secular community during those decades of the 60s and through the 90s, but its actual true origin was in the Garden of Eden when the serpent started talking to Eve. Genesis 3, 4, and 5 tells us all about it. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the temptation here that he's actually giving, he says, Eve, if you go ahead and do this, you're going to wake up and find out what a cool chick you really are. (laughs) God isn't the I am. He's trying to keep you from seeing that you are the I am. So the other movement that I mentioned that had a big influence here and taught its own slant of the I am message was the New Age movement. Anybody remember the age of Aquarius? (laughs) Um, This movement spread throughout the occult and the metaphysical religious communities in the 70s and the 80s. And it looked forward to a new age of love and light and offered a foretaste of the coming era through personal transformation and healing. And here's where Shirley MacLaine comes in again. This is something that was written more recently by a man um, about this. He says, for some 25 years... I've had a troubling struggle with Shirley MacLaine's autobiographical autobiographical book and movie, Out on a Limb. Her book was published in 1983, and the movie was released in 87. The essential message of both is that the New Age spirituality is valid with its advocacy of higher truths such such as astral projection, reincarnation, karma, soul channeling, and related topics. He said the climax of the movie, for me, he said, depicted McLean spinning ecstatically on a beach, boldly proclaiming with outstretched arms, I am God. You hear the I am? So here are the basic tenets of the new age. We all exist in unity, and everything is a part of everything else, and all of it is God. Since we are all a part of God, power resides in us, and goodness lies within each of us, and man is inherently good. 
Spiritual experience is important. Connection with the spirit world is made through spirit guides, channeling, meditation, etc. And spirit is there to guide and help us become all we can be. All we have to do is learn how to clear all the junk out of the way that's caused by low self-esteem and low self-love and all those wonderful, good, and perfect things that are already in us will just naturally bubble to the top. And that's what produces success, prosperity, and happiness in abundance. So even though it was called the New Age, it didn't just crop up with Shirley MacLaine in the 80s. It actually has its roots in Gnosticism in biblical times. You remember that the preacher in Ecclesiastes says there's no new thing under the sun. So we see these things repeated in different ways at different eras in culture. So there's a whole lot more that could be said about the New Age movement, but I'm not going to because it's not relevant to what I'm saying here. But my point in bringing it in is that it is also a contributor to the um, various I am messages and the ways that we've been influenced and how it's even crept into Christianity in a way that we haven't even recognized. So how has the, have these particular movements affected us even today? One report I read recently said that there are four main beliefs that are characterized as New Age or metaphysical that many American Christians currently hold as true. Belief in reincarnation. 33% of professing Christians believe in reincarnation. Belief in astrology. 29%. Anyone following the horoscope? Belief in psychics, 41%. And 42%, and this is of American Christians, remember that, 42% believe in the presence of spiritual energy in physical objects like mountains or trees. Many Americans who are religiously unaffiliated, those who believe in a God but not organized religion, also have these beliefs. And so when you look at these statistics, roughly that boils down to six of ten American adults who accept at least one of these four main New Age beliefs. And that divides out to about 47% of evangelical Protestants and roughly seven in ten Catholics and Protestants in the historically black tradition who believe at least one of these. I found that to be rather disturbing. To me, these areas are ones that teach very contrary messages to the word of God. They can be very subtle. Thereby, they can be very deceptive. And by now, they are such a part of our culture that we can be easily fooled if we aren't alert to them and if we don't know what God's word actually says. I was working with a woman yesterday who was raised in a Catholic tradition, actually in another country, but I started, as I was talking to her, to quote a scripture to her because to me it was relevant to what we were talking about. And I said, and the Apostle Paul said, and I said, do you know who the Apostle Paul is? No. So she claimed to be a Christian or of that tradition, but she did 
had, she had no idea who the Apostle Paul was. That's disturbing to me. So these messages, again, can be very subtle. They can be very deceptive. And we have to recognize. We have to be aware. And so they are messages that parade themselves in ideas and concepts that are not so obvious, and they all appeal to our fleshly, carnal natures. Our carnality, our flesh, our nature says, I want to be in charge. I want to be powerful. I want to feel good about myself. I want to be successful. I want what I want when I want it. I want to be I am. The prophet Hosea said this in the first part of Hosea 4.6. He says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. If we don't know, it's pretty easy to fall for it. Here's what I believe. We're looking at messages that are the opposite of God's word. The self-esteem movement and the New Age both in different ways are promoting the self as most important. The self is the I am. They say, these messages say, pay attention to getting your own needs met and how you feel before you do anything else. You can't really attend to others' needs or care about other people until you have what you want. But the word says in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone desires to come after me, let him what? Deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. One of the reasons I think that these kinds of messages from the world, like you have to love yourself first before you can love others, are so easily taken in and we say, oh yeah, that's right is because of their plausibility and the fact that they do contain some element of truth. The truth is how we view ourselves and see ourselves is important. And it does impact how and what we do. What we believe about ourselves is important and it affects our ability to get along in life. But here's the thing. What that actually looks like in the world and what it looks like in the kingdom are completely different. You've just heard a little bit about what that looks like in the world. Here's what the word says about how we are to esteem ourselves. Philippians 2.3 says this, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Romans 12 and 3. For I say, through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. 2 Corinthians 3 5. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from what? God. Galatians 6.3, for if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. What about self-love, the I am of man? The Bible has a great deal to say about love. You take, you look at Nave's NIV topical Bible, and it has six pages on the subject, just of love. Biblical passages on love describe the quality of love, 
the expression of love, the types of love, the result of love, the value of love, examples of love, commandments about love, the love of God and the love of Jesus. But not in one single instance does the Bible recommend, command, or command self-love or self-esteem. If we esteem ourselves highly, have high self-esteem, how, we, how are we ever to relate to our innate sinfulness and our need for a savior? If we believe that new age premise that we are inherently good and we just have to clean all of the junk out of the way so all of that goodness can come forth, if goodness lies within us, how can we fit that in with the sinful nature with which scripture says we're born? How are we to realistically evaluate our behaviors and our thinking and know when we need to repent and lay ourselves on the altar before a holy and righteous God? Here's what the word says. Psalm 51, 2 and 3 and verse 5. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression, so my sin is always before me. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Jeremiah 17, 9. My heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The Bible has many, many references to humility and its opposite, which is pride, as it does to love. And throughout the word... The righteous seek God's esteem, while the foolish and the wicked worry about the esteem of men and their own self-esteem. Isn't it really Satan's system that seduces us to bolster our self-esteem and to think highly of ourselves and to love ourselves? Isn't self-esteem actually prideful? Remember the real word of the word, the meaning of the word esteem, high value of estimation, great opinion. I don't believe we need high self-esteem. We need God esteem. Now, while I'm saying that this idea of self-esteem and self-love are not of the kingdom and that we should not think that we are all that in a bag of chips... I also believe that we must have a right self-concept. We must know who we are according to God's word. We need to know who we are and whose we are. There's a meaningful difference here between self-esteem, esteeming ourselves, lifting self up, and our self-concept, which is our idea or notion of who we actually are. We must have the correct self-concept to survive in this daily battle we find ourselves in, which is the battle of the I am's. Are we going to let God be our I am? Or are we going to be the I am of our own lives? I believe it's important that we know who we are in Christ. We must know our position as children in the kingdom. And that's where our self-concept needs to come from, from our standing as children of the king. If we don't know who we are as the king's kids, we could be jumping into the wrong bandwagon and not even realize it. Okay, so we've just been spending a lot of time here uh, talking about ways that we shouldn't be thinking. 
let's talk a little bit for a few moments on how we should be thinking. What does God's word tell us? What does his system look like? First of all, his word says we are to depend on him. We are to live according to his word. We are to rest in him. Amen? Deuteronomy 28.1. Now it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all nations of the earth. He sets us on high. We don't do that ourselves. 2 Chronicles 20:17. You will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourself. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. Matthew 6, 31 through 33. Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For after all of these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. But seek ye first, what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Psalm 37.7, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. And Isaiah 40, 31, one of my favorites. But those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, that's obviously just a very small sample of what's available in the Word that is talking about what I'm talking about here. So what I recommend is find your own scriptures and that represent him as the I am in your life. Memorize those. Recognize what they represent in your life. Pray the scriptures. Meditate on them. So <clears throat> in closing here, I want to go quickly. Um, I'm just going to kind of scan through um, a handout, that, that original lesson that I did in 1991. I kind of did a little bit of a reprise on it. And I have some copies up here if anybody's interested um, after we're through. Um, but it talks about a comparison of perspectives, okay? And so in Satan's system, it's self-esteem in the world. And the deception is man is the highest form of being and man depends on self, okay? And it is an appeal to self and feelings, I have to feel good about myself and have my own needs met. Um, and then when Satan's system, again, I'm just scanning through this. When Satan's system isn't working, we engage in compensating mood-altering behaviors, chemicals, addictions, compulsive behaviors, abusive behavior, et cetera, et cetera. And the lifestyle results of this are unrighteousness, which has to do with secular humanism or false religion, or self-righteousness, which I believe has to do with the term, I, maybe I made this up, I don't know, but toxic Christianity. And we may talk about that at another point. But that's about Satan's system. But God's system is self-concept in the word. And the truth here is that God is sovereign 
and man is to depend on God. And so it's an appeal to commitment and responsibility in God's kingdom. So I've, I've done, essentially, it's a little bit of a Bible study and could be used for that. So I've gone through and added, put in a bunch of questions and scriptures that answer those questions. Who are we? We are sinners, chosen, God's handiwork. What are we to do? Be born again? Put on the whole armor of God? What are the results of that? Number of different things. What are we in Christ? How do we conduct ourselves? How do we treat other people? And how do we um, deal with ourselves? Um, and the lifestyle results on that. So again, I'm not going to take the time because I know that it's getting late. But I do have some copies available uh, of that if you'd like to pick those up when we're through. Um, so, in a nutshell, having the highest self-esteem in the world isn't going to yield the fruits of the Spirit in our lives, nor is it going to save us. Feeling good about ourselves and our own abilities and accomplishments is a cheap imitation of the peace of God. But remember, we do need the proper biblical godly self-concept, the idea of who we are, that tells us we are his. And it tells us that he died for us and that we can depend on him and that we can trust him. And that will give us the perspective that we need to develop and grow according to his plan, not ours. And it's the one that will lead us to a life that reflects him and his ways and to be a light to shine to others as we go throughout our lives. If we want to know who we are and how we're supposed to operate, let's go to the manufacturer's instructions, okay? If I bought a new desk from Office Depot and it needed to be assembled, it wouldn't make much sense for me to go get the manual for a Kirby vacuum cleaner to figure out how to put it together. But that's often what we do when we look to the world's ideas to learn how to operate in the kingdom. It just doesn't work. So then why would, why would we go by instructions for a life that lead us to the wrong I am? This world isn't going to tell us how to be saved. It isn't going to tell us the consequences of our foolishness. It's going to lead us directly to the wrong I am to believe in. So we are daily in that battle of I am's. Our flesh wants to believe the messages of the world around us because it makes us feel more important and more powerful. But our spirit yearns for God and for his word and for his presence, and, but we have to intentionally and deliberately put ourselves in the position of listening to that because his spirit calls to us, each and every one of us, each and every day. So I encourage you to pay attention to the messages all around you and make sure they conform with God's word. The choice is before every single one of us every day. Are we going to be a part of Satan's system or a part of God's system? Sometimes it seems very obvious which is which. Other times it's rather difficult to discern the difference. I would hate for any of us to perish for lack of knowledge. 
We need to know what God's word says, and there's no way we will be able to recognize something sounding good that is appealing but fake if we don't know what his word says. Our flesh stands ready every single day to jump in and take over and be the I am. Here's what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, 1. I'm reading this from the message. With promises like this to pull us on, dear friends, let's make a clean break with everything that defiles or distracts us, both within and without. Let's make our entire lives fit and holy temples for the worship of God. I want to ask you to stand with me if you wouldn't mind. I'm going to finish here. Give you a hope that I'm ending soon, okay? <laughs> One last thought for tonight. Have you ever come into a worship service, whether it's a Wednesday night or a Sunday, and you've been feeling a little down or confused or frustrated or maybe just plain depressed? But once that worship starts those feelings just tend to fade into the background. Has anybody ever had that experience? Let me put that into the context of our lesson tonight. Life can really get to us, right? It's difficult. It can be challenging, frustrating. And we often bring those experiences and those feelings with us into the church house. And with that, we're focusing on those difficulties and how they're affecting this poor little I am. But when the worship begins, if we plug into it, those things begin to fade and God's presence and his goodness and mercy begin to overflow us and the real I am has just entered the building. It's a matter of focus. I know I can tell, can you all tell sometimes in a worship service when you can just feel a shift? I call that the tipping point. Enough of us has gotten out of the way and enough of God has gotten in that we can feel the difference and we focus on the I am who is, not the I am that we brought with us. But let me ask you, when you leave the worship service, when you go home, when you're in your car driving, if you switch back to the focus on that little I am, that frustration, that confusion, that hurt, that depression will come back. So let me challenge you to continue to focus on the great I am. Wherever you are, don't just wait until you come into a church service to feel that presence and to know that presence. Take him with you. Take him with you to work. Walking down the street in your neighborhood, take him with you. People need to see that. People need to experience that. Because if they don't know, they're going to be living with the wrong I am. And part of our job is to help them know the true and the real I am. So which one of the I am's will win the battle in your life every day? I challenge you that you allow that great I am 
to be the one that goes with you each and every day. Hey, thanks for listening to Northgate Pentecostal. Check us out on Facebook and YouTube, and you can watch the video of the message you just listened to. God bless y'all.